Welcome back to another rousing episode of Baseball is Dumb. This is a baseball history podcast where I tell you the dumbest stories from America's pastime. I'm your host, Ian, and with me as always, my dear friend, my confidant, the man I used to have a dog with, Mr. Johnny. How you doing, buddy? Confidant. That's a new one. I like that. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Um... I'm I'm ready to ready to rock and roll. It's been a little while. It it has been a minute. Um, so we've reached October. The uh, the regular season is wrapping up. Another season is behind us, and we have entered the we're entering the postseason now. Really, some of the most exciting games baseball has to offer. You know, that's where all the heroics are, where all the clutch hits are made, and this is where legends are born. But um, who cares about all that? It's October, so it's spooky season, bitches. <laughs> It sure is, Ian. It is, buddy. So this episode, I don't know if I told you what we're doing or if I'm making you fly blind into this. Nope, I'm I'm, I'm 100% 100 blind on this. I don't remember a single thing. Okie dokie. Well, you're in for a good time. Because since it's spooky season, this is going to be our Halloween episode. Because today we are talking about some of the most famous curses in baseball history. Yes! Yes! I know. I'm, I'm so psyched. I'm really excited. So, yeah, so we are going to take a look at some curses in baseball. Kind of give, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on them, how the curses played out, and what the fan bases did in an attempt to break these curses. So, uh, <laughs> let's just right out of the gate let's go with one that everybody knows or is at least has probably heard about the curse of the bambino yes. are you ready yes it's this is a good one all right so in the year of our lord 1914 some guy named babe ruth joined the boston red sox boston would go on to win back-to-back world series wins in 1915 and 1916 and then again in 1918 from 1916 to 1919, the most valuable player on the team in terms of wins above replacement was, guess who? Babe Ruth. Wow. <laughs> I know. Isn't that shocking? Crazy. Not a lot of people know that. Also, <laughs> just a refresher, or if you're new here, wins above replacement is how many teams or <laughs> how many teams your game won. No. Um, how many games your team won because of your individual contribution to the team? Now, uh, remember, since this is early in Babe's career, he is he's still pitching. So he's a pitcher and a hitter. He hasn't been put in the outfield. And he isn't hitting every day. So I think that kind of speaks more volumes as to how dominant he was as a player. As a, as a pitcher, first and foremost. Yeah. yeah, as a pitcher and a hitter early in the year. So, following his 1919 season is when the Boston Red Sox team owner, Harry Frazee, sold Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees, who had never even appeared in a World Series at that point. Wait, no way. That's... Yep. Oh. Yeah, the Yankees used to be a really, like, bad team. (laughs) Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so they... The Yankees actually started their franchise history as the Baltimore Orioles. And then they moved up to New York and became the Highlanders, eventually renaming to the Yankees. Okay, gotcha. And so they were kind of an expansion team that really sucked, and uh, (laughs) nobody really cared about them. They were not the evil empire we know them as today. (laughs) So, obviously, it's insane to trade away your best player. Or not even trade away, just straight up sell him to a rival team. Yeah. Um, 
I don't really think I need to explain why it's crazy, but I'm going to do it anyway. So 1919 had been one of Baber's best seasons of his career at that point. This was the, it was actually 1919 where he shifted from pitcher to position player, so he would play almost every day. Mm -hmm. And even at the time, people thought that was crazy (laughs) of uh, not having him pitch anymore because he was a great pitcher. But eventually, you know, team ownership realized that Babe's bat was more valuable to have every day than him on the mound every, you know, two or three days. Mm Mm-hmm. His wins above replacement, or his war is what I'm going to say for the rest of the episode, was 9.9, which was the second best of his career at that point. He had also hit his highest OPS so far, which was 11.14. What? Oh. Like, yeah, like so, no one hits that. No one ever gets that high, unless your name yeah. is Barry Bonds or Babe Ruth. <laughs> or Babe Ruth or Ted Williams, I guess. Or Ted Williams. Um. And again, a stat refresher, OPS is your on-base plus your slugging percentage. Um, it literally just takes both those stats and adds them up. So if you have a high OPS, that means you get on base a lot and you hit a lot of extra base hits. Even though Babe was doing well, the Red Sox finished in sixth place out of eight teams in 1919, which kind of even begs a bigger question. Why would you sell your best player when your team is floundering? <laughs> so Harry, the team owner, was a theater producer. Actually, that was like what he did. And he had purchased the Red Sox in 1916 and in doing so took on a considerable amount of debt. Uh, by 1919, he was still paying that off when he was in need of more cash to finance his new play called My Lady Friends, which would go on to become uh, <laughs> No No Nanette which apparently was a huge hit at the time. Uh, I don't know if any theater nerds are listening to this, but uh, if you know the show No No Nanette, uh, there's a little overlap with baseball. It used to be called My Lady Friends. Fun fact for you there. It's just so funny to me that this guy is basically has a side gig as a baseball manager just so he yeah. can, so he can like <laughs> be a thespian. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, I guess, like, a lot of team owners are, like, even today are, like, you know, like, billionaires who do other shit. Yeah, that's true. Like, like I'm sure there's some oil baron who owns some major league team. (laughs) Harry has taken on a lot of debt, and he needs more money to finance this new play. So in order to alleviate the financial pressure, he sold Babe to the Yankees for $100,000, which is about $1.5 million in today's money. That's not that much. Well, I guess compared to, like... Uh, yeah, the contracts of today. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, pitchers are being paid, you know, tens of millions a year, and then you have people like Mike Trout who are being paid hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, like, uh, Babe Ruth today, his contract would be, like, insane. Okay, so if Garrett Cole gets, like, what, $380 million? from the yankees yeah something ridiculous like that i think i think you can safely argue babe ruth should would probably get like 400 mil yeah for a contract it's nuts it's insane (laughs) so uh a little fun fact Frazy actually moved to boston from new york so (laughs) a small detail but maybe an important one (laughs) um so yeah harry sells babe to new york uh, the Yankees went on to build Murderer's Row, winning four World Series titles with Babe, and a total of 26 titles before the end of the century. 
The Red Sox, meanwhile, would not win another World Series until 2004 in 86-year drought. <laughs> it's, it's just like, it's absolutely mind-boggling that it it just took that long. I know. Like, that's that's an entire lifetime where a team does not win a World Series. <laughs> that's yeah, that's more than a lifetime. Like the average yeah. <laughs> you think about the average life expectancy of a person born in like 1915 is probably 70 years old if not less. Yeah, probably. So it's like if you were born in in like 1915 and you're whatever 3 years old in 1918 when the red sox win the world series you're never gonna see them win another world series in your entire <laughs> For life the rest of your life holy oh my god it's you're gonna see the game change so much but you're not gonna see your team win another world series <laughs> it's it's just so sad so during boston's 86 year drought boston would reach the world series four times but each time they lost in the seventh game of the series and thus the curse of the Bambino was born. That's just so, it's brutal. I know, that's gotta be so heartbreaking. Especially if you are that uh, person who was three years old in uh, 1918 and then see the team go back four more times and then always lose at the penultimate game. Uh, it's it's almost like being a Mariners fan sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm gonna well, I'm gonna leave my personal uh, struggles out of this. I was about to say something mean, but I'm not gonna do it. Do it. You say it. I was gonna say at least the Red Sox got to the World Series. <laughs> You're absolutely right. You're absolutely I'm sorry. right. I am still waiting. I feel bad. I'm, oh. Mariners, I do love you. I do want you to win it all. I really do. Even though you're not my home team. I want to see you succeed. I truly want that for you. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) uh, yeah, the Red Sox spend eight decades not losing a, excuse me, uh, not winning a World Series. And so the fans spent that time trying everything in their power to break the curse. One such method was to recover a piano Babe Ruth had left in a pond. Now, (laughs) a little bit of explanation for this. Babe owned a property in Sudbury, Massachusetts, which is a kind of a small town, about 30 minutes outside of Boston. He bought the Obadiah Perry farm and renamed it Home Plate. While out there, he tried his hand at farming, and while he lived out there, he was neighbors with Henry Ford. Yeah, that one. <laughs> just just Henry Ford is living out there. So, um, Henry and Babe didn't really get along. Uh, Henry didn't like Babe because Babe's dogs kept getting out and killing Henry Ford's chickens. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Ford also was annoyed that Babe didn't drive a Ford car. And he also kept trying to sell Babe one of his tractors, but Babe refused to buy one of Ford's tractors. (laughs) That's so dumb. (laughs) Um, that's like, all right, Henry Ford sounds like a really shitty neighbor. Oh, he was a really shitty person, just in general. Because this is not his only connection to the Curse of the Bambino. He had his own theory for why the Curse of the Bambino was happening. Um, He blamed the Jews. (laughs) Excuse me? So, um, yeah, he thought it was the Jews' fault because he knew the 
the guy who sold Babe Ruth was Harry Frazee. And Harry Frazee is a theater producer, which he also knew. And since he's a theater producer, surely Harry has to be Jewish, right? Um, Harry was a Presbyterian. <laughs> yeah, flawless logic, Henry. And uh, go fuck yourself, Henry, you anti-Semitic piece of shit. <laughs> um, yeah, you tell him. So, yeah, that's a maybe not so fun fact. But, yeah, Babe was neighbors with Henry Ford. It was not a fun um, fact, but I'm glad that I heard it anyway. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Babe lived on this farmland outside of Boston. And here's a cool thing that Babe, Babe would do. Um, so since Babe spent a lot of his youth growing up in orphanages, when he finally had a successful career in baseball, he would actually have busloads of... Uh, orphan kids come out to his farm property and he would host baseball games for them and so he would put the kids on teams and the kids would just like play baseball for a day and when they left he sent them home with like tons of gear like gloves bats and i think he would sign them sometimes but uh yeah that's how babe kind of gave back to the orphaned youth of massachusetts at the time that's kind of nice yeah like that's a really cool thing to do when he's not getting drunk and punching umpires <laughs> yeah you know there's a, there's always two sides <laughs> yeah uh you know i think uh john boyce said it best about uh what was that atlanta coach he's like nobody's ever one thing yeah like, oh. yeah that's right um nice piece of wisdom good thank you john if you're listening to this we we love you John, I I do love you. I rip off your style entirely, and that's why I make this show. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, he has his farm property, and Babe would host parties there a lot. And one version of the story is he was having a party, and in a drunken display of his strength, he took this like classic 1920s stand-up piano he had, and he threw it into Willis Pond, which was nearby. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, so that didn't happen. Uh, but another version claims that Babe moved the piano onto the pond while it was frozen. And then his wife, Helen, played the piano while other party guests uh, drank and danced the night away on top of this frozen pond. And after the party, they tried to push the piano off the ice and back up the hill but they couldn't get it back up the hill so they just kind of left it there <laughs> by the pond <laughs> so the there's just a piano outside yeah there's just a piano out in the wilderness now there is i think this is the real version of the story because many years later <laughs> in 1964 two brothers named charlie and steve barry stumbled across an old piano in the woods near willis pond the two went home and told their mother, and after talking to a few neighbors, someone recalled the piano being pushed off the ice after a party many years prior. So, I think that does give credence to the story of them putting it on the ice and <laughs> for the party. Okay, that's that's very understandable. That like that makes sense more so than drunkenly throwing a piano into a, a pool of water. Yeah, like that's pretty nuts, even for Babe Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> Um, a few years later, when Charlie and Steve were teenagers, they got a bunch of plywood and they went back to the spot where they found the piano and they built themselves a clubhouse around the piano where they would drink, smoke cigarettes, and read Playboy magazine. <laughs> That's really cool. I know, like, it would be awesome to just, like, have your own clubhouse when you're a teenager. I feel like we all had that fantasy. 
But just it's a real like dudes rock thing to just like drink beer and smoke cigarettes <laughs> with porn magazines while Babe Ruth's piano is uh, right next to you. <laughs> I wonder if Babe Ruth was still alive at that point, what he would have said about it. Um, he probably wouldn't have been very happy because um, I wish I could tell you that they had like this blues thing going where they were hanging out and like playing the piano, <laughs> like a bunch of rockabilly songs and stuff. But um. That's not what they did. They uh, they used the piano as a toilet, actually. <laughs> I, somehow I knew you were gonna say that. <laughs> you just knew deep down that's what was gonna happen. It's like, yeah, they're gonna they're shitting on the piano. Yeah. Why else would it be on baseball as dumb if you're not shitting on the piano? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, you're absolutely right. So somehow the clubhouse began to develop a very foul odor. I don't know why. Hmm. I looked it up, I but I why. couldn't figure it out. <laughs> Huh, I wonder, could it be, hmm, I don't know, is there shit in the piano? <laughs> yeah, I don't know, we'll have to look into that. So, uh, the boys did the logical thing, and uh, burned the entire clubhouse down. <laughs> yeah, let's go, guys being dudes! Yeah, um, rock on! So, uh, suspiciously, the cursed piano did not burn. <laughs> <laughs> And since fire didn't work, the boys decided to give it a burial by sea and push the piano into the pond where it would remain for a few decades. <laughs> <laughs> that, oh god, there's so many things that I could say right now. And I don't think I'm going to say any of them and leave it up to the listener's imagination. I don't know, I want to hear your theory, I want to hear your take on this. <laughs> No, I just, the the fact that there is a shit-crusted piano <laughs> in some random pond in Massachusetts makes me very happy. <laughs> well, uh, you're not the only one. <laughs> so, um, a Red Sox fan by the name of Kevin Kennedy learned about the piano story and spent a great deal of time trying to prove this story and prove that the piano was, in fact, real so he could... He wanted to go into the pond and search for it, but he couldn't just do that. He had to get a permit from the city to go do it. So he does a ton of research, and, like, he actually goes to, like, Babe's hometown. I think he's from Baltimore originally. Yeah. And, uh, and like, he, like, basically uncovers all of Babe's life, and he does prove that the piano does, in fact, exist. He gets the permit, and so him and a team of divers go into the pond, and they search around the pond for four hours, but they don't find anything. So the story of Kevin searching for this piano kind of pops up around the state, and the story reaches who else but one of the boys, Steve Barry. <laughs> so he he finds out about Kevin's quest to find his old shit-covered piano. <laughs> <laughs> and he gets in touch with Kevin, and he's like, hey, man, I know where to find that piano. And he, like, drew, he basically, like, drew a map of, like, where his old clubhouse was and gave them, like, a very specific part of the pond to search. So the divers go back in, and lo and behold, they find a piano leg and a six, another, like, six-foot piece of wood. Um, so that's pulled out of, that's pulled out of the water, and the wood was inspected by, uh, like, a wood specialist, and like a piano specialist <laughs> and uh both parties uh confirmed that the wood could in fact belong to a 1920s piano 
The divers also said that they found, like, the harp of the piano, but to get it out, they'd have to, like, do a lot more, like, <laughs> excavating, which requires a lot more permits. Uh, I don't know if they ever went back and, and got the harp out. I don't think they did, so they just got the wood out, which has been hand over to, handed over to the Sudbury Historical Society, where it sits today. So the only question that remains about Baver's piano is... Did recovering some of it break the curse of the Bambino? Do you have any guesses? Hmm. Let me guess. Is the answer no? Correct. It did not break the curse because the piano was recovered in 2010, six years after the Red Sox had already won a World Series. Oh, shit. Okay, well. (laughs) So this, this is the story, not of the curse of the Bambino, but the curse of the shit-crusted 1920s piano at the bottom of a pond. <laughs> I guess, yeah. <laughs> so so that didn't break the curse. Uh, let's look at something else that may have broken the curse. So we're going to time travel a little bit uh, to 1992. So Boston has been cursed for a little over 70 years by this point. And so they did... Just the way that you phrased it. They've been cursed. You know, it's been about seven decades since they got cursed. Yeah. Uh, They've really been going through it for a while. (laughs) Um, So yeah, after 70 years of curse, um, they've tried a whole bunch of stuff. Um, If you've been cursed for 70 years, like, what would you do? Like, if if you're, like, desperate for options, do you... What what do you think you would do? Um, I might perform like a seance. <gasps> you are very very close to what the Red Sox did. Oh shit! Okay, yeah yeah yeah. Let's hear it. Let's uh, hear it. So what they did is they went to the stadium and performed an exorcism. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so on September twenty fourth, nineteen ninety two, about two hundred fans gathered outside Fenway Park to witness an exorcism led by the one. The only, Father Guido Sarducci. <laughs> Guido Sarducci? That sounds like a made-up name. You're correct, it is. <laughs> uh, which is, honestly, that bums me out. I wish this was a real guy. Um, this was a character created by the comedian Don Novello. Um, he actually performed as this character on Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live in, like, the 70s. Um I'm going to be honest, I was pretty bummed when I found that out while researching this. <laughs> that is really sad. But also, Guido Sarducci sounds like like just the most generic, stereotypical like Italian name that you can think of. And it's like, oh my god, there's actually a person named Guido Sarducci. Yeah, Guido Sarducci. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Father Guido, uh, <laughs> Lisa's sorry. exorcism. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, it's okay. Papa, uh, Papa Guido. Yeah, Papa Guido. <laughs> or maybe Poppy Guido, maybe we should Pop, call Poppy him. Guido. In the original Italian, Poppy Guido. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, so, so Poppy Guido was accompanied by a girl who only identified herself as Rock Babe, and the two ascended a cherry picker above the stadium to perform the ritual. Now... Although Father Guido is a man of God, uh, he's actually afraid of heights, so he doesn't actually like being close to the heavens, ironically. (laughs) (laughs) So while he's above above the stadium on the cherry picker, he sprinkled some holy water and then asked the crowd to give themselves a noogie to, quote, shake out the evil spirits. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, when Father Guido, when Father Guido came down, he declared the curse had been lifted. But he also said the next exorcism he performed would be on the ground. <laughs> um, he then claimed the Red Sox would win the World Series the following year, and that Boston would win their game against Cleveland that night. Um, at the time, the Red Sox record was sixty-eight and eighty-five. Um, yeah, <laughs> I wrote yeah. that down for a reason, and I don't remember why. Um, Probably because that's a terrible record, and saying that they're going to win the World Series in the next season is a huge claim. Yeah, uh, I have some more claims by him that we'll get to in a second, but uh, let's talk <laughs> about right. the crowd for a second. Because uh, among the crowd was a woman who was upset that none of the Red Sox players showed up for the exorcism. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, she said, quote, for fans as loyal as we are, a couple of them could show their face. And, like, I kind of understand that feeling, but they were playing Cleveland in Cleveland that day. Like, it was it was a second or third game of a series, so they had been out of the city for a couple of days at that point. <laughs> so that's like, why they didn't show up. <laughs> yeah, just let's get some Red Sox players to fly back from Cleveland, <laughs> watch this exorcism, and then fly back to Cleveland to, to play this baseball game. Yeah, just get some bullpen guys who aren't available that day to go back or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know this guy. This you know this guy pitched yesterday. We're not going to need him for the next couple of games. Yeah, or a starter. Yeah, the previous day starter who's on rest. <laughs> um, another fan who was there was a man wearing a donkey mask, claiming to be a season ticket holder. Um, <laughs> when they asked him for his name, he only said, "I am section twenty-two." <laughs> The entire section. Yeah, he's a season ticket holder in Section 22, and he would only go by the name Section 22. So I wonder if he's still there. I wonder if you could like <laughs> like look at a Red Sox game at Fenway and see like yeah. scope out Section 22 and see Donkey Mask guy. <laughs> yeah, and figure it out, see who it is. So uh, Section 22 enjoyed the ceremony, but he was quoted saying, "I've been to a lot of games this year, and I'm depressed." <laughs> but now I believe next year we are going to win the World Series. Section 22 also claimed that Roger Clemens would win 25 games and bat in the cleanup spot. <laughs> All right. Maybe this guy maybe this guy has a, has a couple of screws loose. Uh, so um, winning 25 games as a pitcher is practically unheard of. It's really rare for a starting pitcher to win even 20 games. Now, Roger Clemens was a very elite and dominant pitcher in his day, but 25 games is, that's, that's like God-level pitching for an entire <laughs> season. Um, so the following season, uh, Clemens would finish 11-14, uh, and 14, and shockingly did not bat cleanup because he's on an American League team and pitchers don't hit. <laughs> Pitchers don't bat cleanup anyway. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't care if you're, like, maybe if you're Babe Ruth, you would bat cleanup. <laughs> maybe you're Shohei Otani, you'll bat Maybe you're Shohei Otani, but, like, he usually leads off because that's how good he is. Yeah, he's like, you know, I can hit a home run whenever I want. <laughs> so, Section 22's predictions didn't come true. As for Father Guido's predictions, he was right about beating Cleveland that night as Boston won the game 6-4. to As for Boston winning it all in 1993, 
Boston would finish the season 80 and 82 with an 80 and 82 record, 15 games behind first place in the AL East. So, thanks for playing, Father, but uh, try again next time. Sorry, Father Guido, Papa Guido. Sorry, Papa Guido. Um, God did not hear your prayers. Um, <laughs> now, Johnny, what if I told you this was not the first time Boston turned to the occult for help? Uh, I would believe you because the Red Sox are insane. Yeah, it's also like, um, you know, Boston's a deeply Catholic city, so it doesn't surprise me that they turn to a lot of uh, religious and, uh, I guess, I don't know, mystical, for lack of a better word, uh, answers to try and help them out. So, in 1976, (laughs) uh, the Red Sox were in the midst of a 10-game losing streak when a Boston radio station paid to fly out uh, a woman by the name of Lori Cabot from Salem to Cleveland. (laughs) Now... Lori is officially recognized by the state of Massachusetts as a witch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then Governor Michael Dukakis gave her the title uh, in 1975 when he was awarding her uh, the Paul Revere Patriot Award. Um, she did a lot of work with dyslexic children, and that's how she um, that's how she got that the Paul Revere Award. And then at the time. Governor Dukakis was like, and also we're just gonna say you're a witch. You're a you're a state recognized witch. Congratulations, Lori. <laughs> I wonder if that was like a publicity move for for her. It's like, oh yeah, I'm a witch, but I'm also gonna do like all of this good stuff so that people don't think I'm like that bad of a person. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. Who's to say? I didn't do a lot of research on Lori. <laughs> okay, continue. Um, so Lori goes to Cleveland and she sat behind the visiting dugout and claimed to use clairvoyancy to help the team. Uh, the Red Sox won once again, six to four in extra innings against Cleveland's first (laughs) against Cleveland after their first baseman committed multiple errors, which was kind of unusual because their first baseman at the time was a pretty sure-handed guy. He didn't make a lot of errors, but this game, he just kept screwing up. And also, Cleveland's pitcher was called for the most cursed play in baseball, the balk. Oh. Ooh. Ooh, a balk. <laughs> for those of you listening and wondering, hey, Ian, what's a balk? Um, I don't know. Nobody knows <laughs> for sure what a balk is. I'm convinced umpires just kind of call it whenever they want to. You can look up what a balk is, but that's not what a balk is. <laughs> a balk is, I think, by definition, if the pitcher like does something illegal on the mound which could mean in any number of things that yeah, i think sorry go ahead <laughs> um oh, i was just gonna say it could mean any number of things and most of these things a aren't written down and b i'm pretty sure are made up on the spot by the umpires yeah like the the language of the rule is rather loose and definitely up to interpretation I think it's something like if the pitcher makes a false move, but like, what's a false move? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it could be anything. Um, so it doesn't really get called all that often in games, but when it does, there's always lots of arguing because nobody really knows for sure what a bulk is. Uh, I stand by that statement and I will die on that hill. <laughs> um, so the Red Sox win. And <laughs> the Red Sox manager at the time is Daryl Johnson. And after the game, he said, quote, whatever did it for us, I'm happy about it. 
Meanwhile, Indians manager Frank Robinson wasn't as enthused about <laughs> Cabas magic, saying, quote, I don't think that's even worth a comment. <laughs> <laughs> did they, like, ask him after the game? It's like, what did you think about the witch sitting behind your dugout cursing your players? Yeah, they were like, do you think the witch is what caused you to lose the game? And he was like, that's stupid. I'm not answering that. <laughs> <laughs> I probably wouldn't answer either. Lori was like, she said she like just sort of felt the energy of the team and was like, oh, there's definitely, they have a leader. There's someone they rally around and he was in good spirits that, that night or whatever. Or so, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, as I said earlier, the Red Sox would break the curse in 2004. The first sign that the curse might be lifting was during a game on August 31st when Manny Ramirez hit a foul ball that struck a young fan in the face, knocking out his two front teeth. I think because (laughs) even when it's accidental, Bostonians can only communicate with violence. (laughs) So, as for the fan who got hit in the face and lost his teeth, his favorite player was, in fact, Manny Ramirez. And where did this fan live? He lived on the very same Sudbury farm once owned by Babe Ruth. (laughs) What? Yeah. It gets better. That same night, the Yankees lost to Cleveland 22-0 in New York. (laughs) To this day, it's the largest blowout loss in Yankees franchise history. (laughs) That's crazy. Isn't that nuts? That, all right. Maybe that witch... Maybe that witch did do something, but maybe it was like a little bit delayed. Yeah, it just it just took some time for all the all the stars to align. Uh for her like bubbling cauldron of like fish eyes or whatever to like <laughs> simmer over. <laughs> I don't fish know. What do witches like, do? Snake guts and <laughs> I don't I don't know what witches do. I always thought that they got like books and say magic things and then be like ooga booga oogity wangity <laughs> and then that's it um if any witches are listening to this show please uh send us a you know reach out to us we'd love to know more about you and uh uh how you guys help baseball <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> so obviously the red sox make the playoffs in the 2004 season they finish uh with a record of 98 64 uh, snagging the American League wild card slot. Now, at the time, there wasn't a wild card game. There was just the fourth best record, or I guess, yeah, the fourth best record because there were three divisions at the time. Mm-hmm. So, whoever had the fourth best record was the wild card team, and he went to the playoffs. You didn't have to, you didn't play a one game thing. So, Boston would go on to face uh, the Angels in the American League divisional series, and they swept them in three games. Then they went on to the American League Championship Series, where they faced off against who else but the New York Yankees. As usual. As usual, and also the very team Babe Ruth was sold to. And things got off to a bad start because Yankees took the first three games, which is not what you want to do in a best-of-seven series. So, Yeah. yeah, the Red Sox have to win four in a row or they're not going to the World Series. And you want to know what? They did. They, they won the it. next four, making them the first team in the history of MLB to come back from a 3-0 deficit in the ALCS. Didn't, um, this was recent, no, never mind. That was, they were, like, down, like, 3-1 when, uh, Cleveland played, um, Chicago, and that's not the ALCS. Never mind, disregard me. That was the World <laughs> Series. <laughs> that's all right, buddy. So, 
they move on to the World Series, and they face off against the St. Louis Cardinals, and they sweep the Cardinals in four games, ending the curse of the Bambino. The final out of the World Series was against Cardinals shortstop, Edgar Renteria. I really should have written down how to pronounce his last name. And he wore the number three on his jersey. You want to know who else wore the number three? Babe Ruth. Yep. Yep. I knew it. They struck out Babe Ruth. Yep. Struck out Babe Ruth. Speaking of the number three, this was also the third consecutive year a wildcard team would win the World Series. In 2002, it was the Angels, and in 2003, it was the Marlins. The Marlins, that's right. I forgot the Marlins have (laughs) a World Series win and appearance under their belt, unlike some teams that I enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They've won two World Series, right? They have won two World Series. Yeah, both times as a wildcard team. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, I think wasn't it up until the 2020 season? Weren't they like undefeated in uh, like playoff series <laughs> at the time or something? Yeah, yeah, because, I think they, because are they? I don't know if they were undefeated in play. No, because yeah, because they had only made the playoffs twice as wild yeah. cards, and both times won the World Series. Yeah. So 2020 was the first time they went to the playoffs and 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 didn't make it all the way through. Like, hey, two-thirds, like, that's still pretty darn good. Yeah, they have a 1,000% winning percentage in the uh, of World Series appearances. It's pretty <laughs> Not good. Not a lot of teams can say that. <laughs> Not a lot of teams can say that at all. Thanks, thanks Florida. <laughs> uh, so that's the Curse of the Bambino. Uh, I want to move on to another one. So I'm going to ask you, uh, here's something. I don't know if you can believe this, Johnny, but do you know that the Mets, the New York Mets, are also cursed? Uh, I didn't know that they were officially cursed. I just thought that was like an accepted thing. Yeah, I I know exactly what you mean. I when I found this out, I was like, I wasn't really surprised. I just thought this makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's about how I feel, too. This one's this one's a little unique. Uh, so you know how um, a lot of teams will to like to get people to come to the games and sell more tickets. They'll do like giveaways of like novelty stuff. More often than not, you see them give away like bobbleheads of you know star players on the team. Yeah. So the Mets were doing this, and um, since the year two thousand two, nearly every player who's been commemorated with a bobblehead has either gotten injured, already been injured, or end up performing very poorly. <laughs> Do they still give out the bobbleheads? Uh, I'll, I'll get to that. Um, uh, oh, no. So these bobbleheads are, you know, it's a sponsored thing. They always are. Uh, they are from Gold Pure Food Products, named after co-owner Mark Gold, who is a lifelong Mets fan. One of their uh, signature products is their horseradish. And so every bobblehead is like Gold's horseradish bobblehead of your favorite Mets player, <laughs> basically. All right, that's that's a little bit weird, but whatever. You gotta have sponsors. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, you need sponsors. And since Mark is, he's been a Mets fan his whole life, it makes sense, I guess, that you know he sponsors these bobbleheads. Um so 
The curse kind of begins in 2002 when the man, the myth, the legend, Mike Piazza, was given a bobblehead. Oh, no. He finished 2002 with 33 home runs and 98 RBIs. The following year, he hit only 11 home runs and only played in 68 games. (laughs) Oh. It goes on. The next year, in 2003, John Franco was given a bobblehead. He had been injured and was coming back mid-season... And so the idea was, like, John Franco's going to have this heroic return, and to get more people to the ballpark, we'll give away a bobblehead. Right. So Franco comes back, he gets a bobblehead, but his his return to the league was short-lived. Uh, he pitched in 38 games that year before his numbers uh, suddenly went downhill <laughs> the next season, which would ended up being his last year with the Mets. <laughs> <laughs> It's so it's not like I was expecting it to be like immediately after they gave out these bobbleheads, like something horrible would happen. But it's usually like there's usually like a season or so. Yeah, like it's gap. A, it's a bit of a delay with a lot of these guys. So two in a row, both guys have are befelled with ill fortune. But like, ah, uh, whatever. What are the odds? You know, that's just two guys. Mm-hmm. Um, the next year, Kazmatsui was given a bobblehead. Kazmatsui. Uh, he had a ton of hype around him. He was a star player from Japanese baseball, and he was heralded as kind of the next Ichiro. Mm-hmm. And his 2004 season was pretty good. He hit 272 in 114 games, and he finished sixth in Rookie of the Year voting. In 2005, however, he was plagued with injuries and lost his starting spot at second base. <laughs> oh, God. So three in a row. Um, but, you know... What if it's just a fluke, you know? I don't think I don't think you can say there's a pattern here. So let's move on. Uh, in 2005, uh, Pedro <laughs> Martinez oh, uh, no. of Red Sox fame came to the Mets and was like the new face of the franchise, so he got a bobblehead. Now, for those who don't know, Pedro Martinez is a legendary pitcher. He's in the Hall of Fame. He won three Cy Young Awards. He had the ERA title five times. He was an eight-time All-Star, and his career ERA is 293, which is bananas. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's super, insane. super good. Um, 2005 would be really the last year he was good. Uh, <laughs> his 2005 ERA was 282, which is excellent. And in the following four years of his career, his ERA averaged 407. <laughs> oh. Which, not great. Um, pretty terrible by Pedro Martinez standards. <laughs> So thanks, Mets. You ruined Pedro. <laughs> the bobbleheads. It's always the bobbleheads. It's the bobbleheads. So four in a row. But like again, who's to say that this is a pattern, right? So in 2006, David Wright's given the bobblehead, and you know what happened? Nothing at all. Huh. He was fine. See, there's no curse. It's, there's no curse. It's all in your head. What happened it's in just... 2007? So in 2007. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about 2007. Uh, Paul Loduca, uh, he was given the he was given the bobblehead in 2007, and he also saw his performance slump the following year. In 2008, his bat lost all of its power, as his slugging percentage fell from 378 in 07 to 295 in 08. Oh, so your slugging percentage is basically if you hit a lot of base hits, is like a that's what that is. So if you had a lot of doubles and triples, the higher your slugging percentage is. So he, his batting average didn't fall all that much, 
but he was really only hitting singles, and he he just wasn't a power hitter anymore, pretty much. Mm-hmm. So, okay, that happened, but, you know, nothing happened to David Wright, so you can't say it's a bobblehead, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> Johan Santana was welcomed in 2008. Uh, he's a new player, and he was given a bobblehead, and he had a good season, but uh, ever since then, he's been played with injuries. <laughs> Uh, Francisco Rodriguez got the bobblehead in 2008. Uh, the next year, he got into a fist fight with his father-in-law and injured his hand. <laughs> I'm 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 really expecting this to just ramp up. That's like in 2025, this guy got a bobblehead <laughs> and he died immediately afterward. Yeah, he was immediately struck by lightning <laughs> and, and like, just melted into ash <laughs> in the middle of, of a baseball game. <laughs> of a baseball game. During his baseball game, during or during his bobblehead like giveaway game, he was on the mound and he was struck by lightning at City Field and died. <laughs> it's like, oh shit. That actually did happen to a guy during a game. <laughs> Is struck by lightning? Yeah. Um, I kind of want to do an episode on him later. Uh, so I don't want to... I'll tell you off mic, but I don't want to spoil the whole story now. It's pretty funny, actually. Okay, all right. I'm um, excited. <laughs> so, yeah, this happens to uh, Francisco. Um, I'm starting to think that there might be something up with the bobbleheads here. There's probably something going on, but... Um, eh, whatever. Let's move on to the next guy. In 2010, Jason Bay was given a bobblehead. Oh. Um it just keeps going. It just keeps going. In 2009, he hit 36 home runs. In 2010, he only hit six. <laughs> <laughs> Furthermore, Jason Bay did not even play on the day he was given a bobblehead. <laughs> uh-huh. In 2011, the bobblehead was given to Ike Davis, who was on the injured list at the time. <laughs> this is it's, it's just like... It just gets worse. And now it's not even like he got the bobblehead and they were injured later. Now it's like they were injured as they're planning to give out the bobblehead. (laughs) Pretty much. So by now people are starting to think, hey, I think the bobbleheads are kind of cursing players. (laughs) And Mark Gold is like, I think so. But he stood by his company and his products saying that his signature horseradish has, quote, tons of health benefits. So he's kind of aware something's going on, uh, but he doesn't want to stop doing the uh, the sponsorship thing. So he gets a good idea. He's like, "I'm gonna break the curse. Uh, I'm not gonna off of bo- I'm not gonna give bobbleheads anymore. Instead, we're gonna give out garden gnomes." <laughs> Great. What could uh, go wrong? So in 2015, the very first garden gnome was Jacob Degrom who has since become one of the most elite starting pitchers in baseball. However, he has been injured for most of the 2021 season, so maybe the curse lives on. Maybe. But also, Jacob deGrom, by stats, is, like, the best pitcher of the past 20 years. Yeah, he's amazing. I think I was looking at his ERA before we started recording. His ERA this year is 1.08. Yeah, he's absolutely nuts. But he has he has the 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 Felix Hernandez problem where you pitch incredible and but you get no run support. Yeah, exactly. And also he's been hurt this year, so he's only pitched like fifteen games, I think. Yeah, um, he hasn't pitched so very much. Small sample size, but still one point oh eight ERA through fifteen games is fucking incredible. Yeah, it's nuts. 
So that's the end of the Mets bobblehead curse. Do you think the curse is still going on, or uh, do you think the Mets are just generally hopeless? Um, I think I think both. I think the Mets are generally hopeless, and they they are also cursed. <laughs> that's very fair. That is very fair to say. So we're gonna move on to our third and final curse of this episode, but. We are going to do a first for this podcast because this story does not take place in the MLB. But we're going to talk about Japanese baseball today. Yeah! I love Japanese and Korean baseball leagues. They're like... Oh, yeah. They're uh, like so much fun. Uh, so, yeah. So, um, the Japanese Professional Baseball League, it's known as Nippon Professional Baseball. Um, NPB for short. Uh, it's often just called Japanese Baseball. The organization was founded in 1950, and it does work pretty similar to Major League Baseball here in America. Um, There are two leagues. There's the Central League and the Pacific League. The Central is kind of like the National League because they don't use a designated hitter, while the Pacific League does. So when I say Central League, think National League. If I say Pacific League, it's the American League, just to translate, I guess. At the end of the regular season, the top teams from each league play in the Japan Series, which is equal to the World Series. Both of those series are seven-game sets. A few differences between the two leagues is that the NPB allows ties. So the rule is, if a game is tied at the end of nine innings, they play three more. And if no team is winning by the end of the twelfth inning, then the game is a tie which I, I'm i kind of cool with that rule. I know the MLB has tried to crack down on, like, I don't know crack down's the right word, but, you know, they've changed extra innings rules. Uh, so there's that, like, unearned runner on second that starts every inning just to try and get the game over with, which I understand. But also, like, if the game's a tie, the game's a tie. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I feel like it's a weird source of pride that Americans are like, no, it can't end at a tie. There must be a winner. <laughs> yeah, but it's also, like... I don't want to watch two baseball games worth of nothing happening. Yeah. And, and the players don't want to be out there for like five hours doing nothing and wasting your pitcher's arms. And look, I love baseball, but I don't want to watch one game for five fucking hours, dude. It's <laughs> just a regular nine inning game is long enough. Like it's like most games are like roughly three hours between two and a half and three hours. I like that if you're watching a Japanese game, you know at some point the game will definitely end. <laughs> that is nice. It's like, all right, I'm going to be here, you know, maximum three and a half hours. Yeah. So those are some of the differences. Um, uh, NPB is sometimes called like quadruple A baseball here in the States because um, it's more competitive than AAA, but a little bit less competitive than the MLB. The reason for that is that the core of the baseball is wound tighter. Um, I don't. I probably should have looked up why this matters, but uh, they they do use a different baseball. I think it does. I think it like. I think it does make the ball kind of act differently uh, mm-hmm. than it would uh, with the MLB ball. And also, all the fields are a little bit smaller. Like they're a little bit shorter. I think they average about. Like the outfield fences average about ten feet shorter than uh, than major league ballparks, so they're very similar leagues, but those are a couple of differences. Uh, how they play baseball on the other side of the Pacific. So there you go. You learned something, audience. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ian. <laughs> You're welcome. So 
Our team in question for today are the Hanshin Tigers. They are one of Japan's oldest baseball teams, actually. They were founded all the way back in 1935. Wow. Uh, which is, I don't know, I was kind of surprised to learn this, because uh, I always thought that baseball kind of proliferated after World War II, which I guess is still true, but like, you know, I was surprised to learn that there were professional teams before the outbreak of the Second World War in Japan. I don't know, that was pretty neat. Hmm. Uh, they have spent most of their history in the shadow of another team by the name of the Yomiuri Giants, who were founded one year earlier than they were. Uh, the Giants are kind of like the Yankees of Japanese baseball. They win all the time. They're just a, a very storied franchise with a ton of uh, Japan series titles. The Tigers and the Giants are, they're in this, they're both in the Central League and they're, they're pretty big rivals. Uh, the Giants winning a majority of the pennants, obviously. So the Tigers were in the midst of a 21 year pennant drought when they finally secured the first place spot in the Central League in 1985 and earned uh, their first trip. I believe it was their first trip to the Japan series. As to be expected, Tiger fans were were so psyched that their team was finally going to go to the Japan series after, you know, two decades of waiting. They finally won a pennant. They're going to go and compete for it all. So to celebrate, the fans took to the Dontombori Canal to celebrate. There, the fans would call out the names of Tigers players in the batting order, and then any of the fans who bore a resemblance to the player would jump into the river just as, I don't know, they're all drunk. And so <laughs> they just decided this would be a fun <laughs> thing to do. Uh, so one by one, they would jump into the river, which was reportedly very polluted <laughs> until they called out the name Randy Bass. You know, the traditional Japanese name, Randy Bass. <laughs> yeah, very traditional. It's, it's um, a very common name. So, if you know who Randy Bass is, you're either a huge nerd who knows obscure baseball players from the early to mid-70s, or uh, he used to be your state senator in Oklahoma, in which case, if you knew that, you're still a huge nerd. So, Randy came to Japanese baseball from the MLB. He was drafted by the Twins in 1972, and he made his debut in 1977. He bounced around the league quite a bit, going from the Twins to the Royals to the Expos to the Padres, and then finally the Rangers. He could never get much going offensively, and he played his last MLB game in 1982 before joining the Tigers in 1983. He said going to play in Japan was the best decision he ever made. Uh, although it did take him half a season to get used to the Japanese pitching style. As in Japan, the sort of the philosophy of baseball is a lot different. Um, they focus a lot more on like off-speed pitching than just sort of power fastballs and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so it took him a little while to get used to that. But uh, his batting average in 1983 was 288. And then in 1984, it shot up to 326. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that is a correct reaction to that. <laughs> that that's 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 a lot. Yeah, that's quite a bit. Um, what if I told you that the following year in 1985, when they won the pennant, his batting average hit 350, where he had 54 home runs and 174 RBIs. Is this is this guy is like the NPB Ted Williams? Basically, he to this day is one of the greatest power hitters in the history of Japanese baseball. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So, I guess if you haven't figured out by now, uh, Randy is white and not Japanese, and thus he had no doppelganger amongst the fans of all these Japanese people. So, what do you do if you can't find a white guy? Well, (laughs) the Tigers fans figured it out. They did the right thing, and they went to their local KFC. Uh... (laughs) I see where this is going. While there was not a white person there, there was a statue of Colonel Sanders in front of the store. Yep. At the time, Randy had facial hair that looked a lot like Colonel Sanders, and so the fans kind of scuffle with the staff there, but they tear this Colonel statue stander out of the ground, bring it down to the canal, and throw it into the river. (laughs) (laughs) Um... A couple weeks later, the Tigers would go on to defeat the the Cebu Lions in the Japan Series, winning in six games. It was the Tigers' first Japanese Series title, or sorry, Japan Series title. So it's their first win. They won it all for the first time. Also, a fun fact. Would you like to know who used to play for the Cebu Lions? Do tell. Kazmatsui. (laughs) (laughs) So... In 1986, they began to crumble. (laughs) Uh. Uh, They finished in third place that season, and in 87 and 88, they finished in sixth place out of six teams. So, what was the cause of this very sudden collapse? Maybe science had an answer. In 1988, a new show started airing in Japan. It was called Night Scoop. And night is spelled with a K, like like a chivalrous knight. Yeah, yeah. Um... So it's a late night show about a fictitious detective agency and they take cases from viewers. So people send in like mysteries for them to solve. The very first request was to uncover the missing Colonel Sanders statue. (laughs) (laughs) It it was him. The Colonel did it. Yeah. So the show, uh, they go into the river and after four unsuccessful attempts to recover the statue, uh, the host joked, quote, Until the colonel is rescued and cleansed of the sludge, Hanshin has no hopes of winning a championship. Oh. <laughs> and let me guess, they didn't win a championship. <laughs> yep, this is when the curse of the colonel began. <laughs> From 1989 to 2002, the Tigers managed one second-place finish, three fourth-place finish, two fifth-place finishes, and... And eight sixth-place finishes. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, the Tigers would win their first pennant since their, faithful, since their fateful 1985 season in 2003, but they would lose the Japan Series in seven games to the uh, f- uh, Fukuoka Hawks, a series in which the home team won every single game, and, and it also had three walk-off victories. Um, in Japan, these are called sayonara victories. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to so, use like, that. I kind of want to use, uh, like, I would love to watch this series, even though I know how it ends, because it sounds like it was really exciting. <laughs> this is the, what What year was this? Uh, 2003. 2003. Okay. Yeah. So even though we know the Hawks win and the home team win every game, you I don't know the three walk-off wins, so there's... <laughs> or sorry, sayonara victories. Sayonara so, victories. <laughs> I got. You have to guess that there's some clutch hitting and like just heroics and great plays. They'd probably be great games to watch. I would love to see those. Yeah, I'm sure they're fun. 
they don't win in 2003. They don't win in all of 2003. And uh, the statue of Colonel Sanders stayed underwater until 2009. Uh, <laughs> during a routine cleansing of the river, workers found what they at first thought was a dead body. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then they thought it was like a barrel. But later they discovered it was actually the upper half of Colonel Sanders, although he was missing his hands and his glasses. <laughs> um after some more searching, they found his bottom half and his right hand. And for the first time in 24 years, Colonel Sanders was out of the water. Uh, <laughs> uh, the statue was taken to a shrine in the Kansai area and was given a ceremonial cleansing. <laughs> <laughs> they, like, they like actually cleansed Colonel Sanders of all of his sins. Yeah, they were trying to, they were really trying to, <laughs> to make up <laughs> for throwing him in the river all <laughs> it's those like, years we're sorry. Ago. So the colonel was, <laughs> the colonel was rebuilt and he was placed outside of a KFC location at the Tigers home stadium. Um, there fans would go up to the statue and offer it tokens of forgiveness. <laughs> <laughs> when you said rebuilt, I'm thinking like robo colonel. I know. <laughs> um, the statue of Colonel Sanders stood guard outside the store for a few years, but the Tigers continued to suffer. The Colonel was then moved to a KFC headquarters in Tokyo before it was moved into storage. And in 2017, Colonel Sanders was moved to the KFC office in Osaka, where it sits today. While the Tigers did win a Central League pennant in 2003, 2005, and 2014, they haven't won a Japan series in 36 years. It's thought that maybe the Tigers won't win until the Colonel's left hand and glasses are returned to him. <laughs> they gotta find it. It's gotta be somewhere in the river still, right? Yeah, maybe, unless they were just eroded by time. <laughs> oh, God. I hope not. That means they're never gonna win a series. Yeah, which is really sad. So I hope Colonel Sanders can be uh, fully fixed, can be fully rebuilt. Oh, I forget what year it was, but uh, when Japan won uh, the World Cup in soccer, or sorry, football for international li listeners, um, a bunch of KFCs in Japan either bolted their statues of Colonel Sanders to the ground or just picked them up and brought them inside. <laughs> um, <laughs> because another KFC location got its statue stolen and the fans cut off its hands. <laughs> oh my god. Um, it's kind of fucked up because they had defeated Tunisia in the World Cup, so um, uh, some people think this was in reference to like Sharia law. So um, that's that's fucked up. Yeah, that's that's not super cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's a if you try to steal a Colonel Sanders statue in Japan, uh, you're likely to find that the statue is bolted to the ground because. Uh, I guess fans just love destroying Colonel Sanders statues in Japan when they win cool stuff. <laughs> it's like, you know how in the United States we burn couches after, like, big wins? Yeah. I guess Japan is Colonel Sanders statues. Uh, I guess that's how it is. So um, there's some debate as to whether the Curse of the Colonel is even a thing because, you know, they threw the statue in the river and then they won a World Series or a Japan Series. So it's like... It's kind of like the Mets bobblehead thing, where it's like the curse doesn't set in immediately. It starts like the year after. <laughs> yeah, it takes a little while. Um, and so they've won, a, and you know, they have won a few pennants since throwing the colonel into the river, but they still haven't won at all. So 
who knows maybe that curse is still ongoing too only one way well i guess the 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 colonel's out so yeah, the colonel's out of the river but he's still at least to my knowledge he's still missing a hand and glasses so he's, he's, it's still cursed maybe they'll be cursed for all of eternity oh no poor tigers poor tigers sorry punching <laughs> tigers fans um so those are our three curses that i'm that i wanted to share with you guys um obviously this is not an exhaustive list uh there are plenty more to talk about but yeah those are those are our curses uh how do you feel johnny what'd you learn what did we learn today um what did we learn today we learned uh don't sell the best baseball player of all time yes we learned um (laughs) don't throw colonel sanders statues into a river (laughs) um and we also learned that boston is fucking crazy dude (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah definitely i feel like of all like the baseball cities i think boston has appeared the most in in all of the episodes we've talked about yeah or in all the episodes we've had I know they were a big fixture in our Fred Merkel episode. They're a big one here. Uh, it's like Boston. Cleveland shows up a lot, too. Yeah, Cleveland shows up. Uh, I'm trying to think who else. I mean, I guess the Yankees have been mentioned a lot <laughs> yeah, as well. You really you can't not mention the Yankees. Yeah, when you have these old dynasties, like, like you're going to run into them. They're going to pop up uh, in the history books a lot, so I guess that makes sense. <laughs> but yeah uh thank you all for listening i hope you enjoyed the stories as much as i enjoyed telling them to you johnny i hope you enjoyed yourself oh yes oh yes this was good i was afraid that this one was going to be another depressing episode but no this was great (laughs) yeah i'm sorry i really uh i really uh started this uh started this whole show off with a lot of sad stuff there was a lot of sad stuff and then it's like oh the ejections one it's like oh this is fun and then it's like oh the curses one all right this is fun yeah i feel like this is more the vein of what the show is supposed to be yeah um of how stupid it is and uh instead of laughing at others misfortune even though andy i'm very sorry but what happened to you was very funny and um i have the stats to to prove it because our Andy Hawkins episode is one of our most popular episodes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm glad you guys enjoy listening to that. Um, if you, I guess if you enjoy stories like this, uh, you can reach out on social media. Um, I'm a little more active on Twitter, but I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. So you can follow us at baseball's dumb, um, on Twitter. I think I've just dumb baseball. So, um, yeah, you can find us there or you can find the show there. Uh, yeah, thank you for listening, as always, and, um, yeah, I guess if there's a a baseball player you really like, don't make a bobblehead out of them, because, uh, they're gonna get hurt, or they're gonna (laughs) suck. Especially if they play for the Mets. Especially if they play for the Mets, and maybe both. (laughs) Maybe both. Let's just go with both. (laughs) Probably both. Um... Again, thank you for listening. Uh, Happy Halloween to those who observe. Uh, Happy playoffs to those who observe. And um, I guess congratulations to the teams that made it.